Hello and welcome to CBA's At The Bar, a podcast where we have unscripted conversations with our guests about legal news, topic stories, and whatever else strikes our fancy. I'm your host, John Amarillo of Taft Law, and joining me recently back from a relaxing vacation in Jamaica grading law school papers poolside is my friend Trish Rich of Holland and Knight. Hi, Trish. Hey, John. So, Trish, we are joined today by a longtime mutual friend, Jonathan Moronic, COO and General Counsel of GCM Partners, a management services organization serving psychedelic medicine, medical cannabis, and CBD to patients across the country. John's here to talk to us about something we touched on years ago, but could always do with some reminding on lawyer wellness. But before we do that, and welcome John onto the pod, I want to establish some ground rules with you for this conversation. Okay, Trish? Yep. Okay, so... First, cannabis and psychedelic-related puns will be kept to an appropriate level. Agreed? Okay. Okay. Second, and I want to be blunt, the definition of appropriate dosage will vary from person to person, and I don't want to get lost in the weeds on that. I know you have really high hopes for this conversation, but this is going to be a joint effort, and I just want us to spark up a really good conversation, okay? You are the worst. <laughs> I just, I, I, my first question as we delve into lawyer wellness is how many segments of today's program are we going to dedicate to Diet Coke? You know, let's get into that. John, <laughs> come in the conversation. Welcome yeah. to At The Bar. Thank you. I think my opinion on Diet Coke is going to be unpopular among this audience. Well, you know, I, I think you're probably talking to two experts in this field. I know respectfully uh-huh. that you're an expert, but I had Chex Mix for lunch and I suspect that Trish, you know, uh, had Diet Coke and washed it down with some Diet Coke. So really we're, <laughs> we're at the forefront of this topic. That is Tr- precisely what I had for lunch today, actually. That's tremendous. So speaking of, John, do you think lawyers are particularly susceptible to having poor health? I think that's a resounding yes for a lot of reasons. There is a general expectation that we are perfectionists and that's what clients expect. Two things you don't want to hear from your lawyer ever if you're the client. I don't know or I forgot. I mean, the client pays an exorbitant hourly fee and they want meticulousness and they want 100% perfection and anything less. There's an attitude that it's unacceptable. And so along with that expectation comes a high level of stress, self-medicating, sleep deprivation. We'll talk about a lot of these things today. And lawyers, if I recall correctly, have particularly high substance abuse problems, don't we? Among white-collar professionals, some of the highest. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, I do a lot of CLE programming, and obviously this is a conversation we talk about a lot. And I, I want to start by just saying one of the things I think I have concluded in the wellness space is that, to your point, Jonathan, you know, we are perfectionists. We are people that work well under pressure. We are people that are extremely competitive. And I have sort of come to the conclusion that the things that make us good lawyers are just directly proportional to these, let's just call them not wonderful personality traits. I think that, I mean, what makes a good lawyer? Having high attention to detail, listening closely, being a skeptic, meeting deadlines, writing and researching and reading complex material. That's what makes you good. But when it gets into the realm of obsessiveness or when you're trying to meet those benchmarks and you're not properly slept or fueled, or attentive, it can go off the rails. 
because you are trying to meet those benchmarks, right? I mean, that's right. And the, the, the partner and the client don't really care about your quote unquote personal problems that just, there's an expectation that you will meet the demands regardless of whether you went to bed at two in the morning or 9 PM. I was at a CLE program about a year ago, and somebody put a study up, a new study on lawyer wellness up on the screen. And one of the stats that really stood out to me the most is of, I think it was 144 professions that they had studied. The legal profession was the only one that had a positive correlation between being successful in the field and being a pessimist. (laughs) <laughs> and I thought that was really interesting. And I, <laughs> uh, but also it makes complete sense. If you're going to hire somebody to go out into the world and manage your risk, isn't it somebody that's constantly looking for all of the bad things that could happen and trying to cure for them? And so it just goes to my larger point. Aren't we scorpions to the, you know, the legal profession's frog? And we're just saying, look, this is our nature. To... To be effective, you, I mean, what I always used to do in my conversations with lawyer colleagues and friends over the years is you have to think in a backwards way. What is the worst thing that could happen? And what's the worst thing that I've heard of? And then guard against that. And sometimes you think that you have a a perfect document or a perfect strategy, and then you hear a piece of news about something that the chat GPT research, I'm sure you guys have both heard about this story now, right? Oh, the New York, the New York brief. The the thing in the Southern District of New York. Yeah. So maybe I can't talk about it. (laughs) Oh, really? (laughs) Interesting. Okay. Well, wow. Yeah. But that, that, uh, I wrote an article for Law 360 almost five years ago about the risk of manipulated audio and video evidence. But the idea that AI would create case law out of thin air wasn't even on the radar yet. And now right. I just that if, if you're a lawyer doing research for any reason, that has to be part of the Rolodex in your mind. Well, now that we have AI, we'll probably have time to exercise, right? <laughs> <laughs> so l- let me kind of just speak from personal experience a little bit here. I can tell you, I do not feel like I have time to be healthy. And I know that sounds like, a, you know, kind of a cop out or something like that. But between the job, you know, family, kids, all that kind of stuff. I don't have time to get enough sleep, much less find time to exercise. Talk to me about how common that is and, you know, is there a solution? Yeah. I mean, especially in the United States, uh, working ridiculous hours is a badge of honor. It's the expectation for people, especially in our age range. If you're under 50 and you want to be successful, most or all of your free time is spent working. And then if you have a family and you have friends, you maybe do some of that. But the client and the boss don't care what your personal life looks like. If, it, if your professional life is suffering because you're getting eight hours of sleep, then that's going to be a problem for the boss and the client. So there's, a, there's an old saying, John, that yeah. if you don't make time for your health now, you'll be forced to make time for your health problems later. Sure. Right? And so there is a real thing, if, like me. If you're single and you have more time to dedicate to fitness, you can be in the gym. Whereas if you're married, couple of kids, you don't have that luxury. So you have to fit in your fitness in more creative ways or when you might otherwise be doing something else you'd like to do. Right. I don't know. I, (laughs) so I I have 
John Amarillion, I, I don't think we've ever talked about this, but John Moronic, you and I have talked about this one million times over the years, I think. And I'm with Amarillo. Like, I just don't have time. And I am not single, but functionally single, right? I don't have children, and my husband has gone a lot. And so I We'll save just, that for a different podcast. Yeah, yeah. Well, as long as I, I think I think Moronic was dropping in there that he was single because he's hoping some of our lady listeners are going to be reaching out to him. I, I did notice that. but <laughs> Wouldn't be opposed, everybody. <laughs> and your cell but, phone number is? Yeah. <laughs> I have it if anybody's interested. Um, but uh, I do think... As somebody that doesn't have kids and isn't doesn't have like the pressures of parenthood, I still don't think I can find time for it in my schedule unless I massively rearrange my work schedule. It's just the demands of this job are never ending. And I can tell you, I thought exactly the same thing before I had kids. And now I look back on that time and I'm like, oh, my God, I had so much time before kids. Uh, like I, I was up half the night trying to sleep train my daughter. I'm working on like three hours of sleep right now. Yeah. There are going to be periods in your life. If you are on trial or you have a newborn, you aren't going to have as much time as you will once you hit homeostasis in your life. There are some creative strategies to fit. And I think it sounds like both of you are talking about exercise really. Right. I mean, I mean, yeah, you, you tell that, us, <laughs> it's, yeah. Yeah, but, but the, uh, yeah, of the four, categories of health. I like to call them diet, exercise, mental health, and sleep. Most people, when they talk about exercise, they say, I don't have enough time to do it. A lot of people that do exercise do the wrong thing. They take too long doing it. There are ways to fit it in and have it be effective. It's often the last thing that people want to do when they get home from work. If you have 30 minutes to sit around or let's go pump some iron or like, let's go do some burpees. It's, it takes a dedicated effort to build the habit. And that's something that we can talk about today too, is it's the marginal difference between someone who doesn't do any exercise between that and somebody who is physically fit that could take three to six months of habit training in order to get to a place where you don't dread exercise anymore. Well, let's drill down on that and kind of what I'm particularly interested in. Well, first, I would love to hear like practical solutions to these problems that we've been identifying. But two, you know, for I think a lot of practicing lawyers, the trade-off is, yeah, I could go do that half hour of exercise, not in my current schedule, but I would just have to sacrifice that and sleep. Like the trade-off seems to be exercise or sleep. And we all know how well we perform when we're sleep deprived. Well, that's right. Uh, it, Matthew Walker has really changed the landscape for research and sleep. He wrote a book called Why We Sleep, I think it was published in 2017 or 2018. And he refers to sleep as the neglected stepchild. Because of the four categories I just mentioned, sleep is the one that everyone's willing to trade really easily. And oh no, mine is definitely exercise. <laughs> 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 right, and, and, we, and we don't want, if, if you think about the four things, exercise, diet, mental health, sleep. If you take a 24 hour period, if you're sleep deprived, you're in much worse shape than you are. If you have a bad meal or you're a little bit stressed out or you haven't done your workout. Why? Sleep's arguably the most important. The, the results of one night of sleep deprivation show in imaging studies in animals and in humans that beta amyloid protein and tau protein, which are both hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease, 
you'll see a buildup in one night of bad sleep. And the study of brains among Alzheimer's patients is that they're clogged with these proteins. And it's just something that I can't talk about at the molecular level, but I know that good sleep causes the brain to exhaust these proteins overnight. It's like a residue or waste and sleep is necessary in order to free the brain up so it functions properly. There are a host of health risks associated with bad sleep. And I just, it's this podcast and my material, it's not meant to freak everybody out, but you need to know what the risks are. When you cross the street, you have to look and it's just something that is part of life. So knowing the health risks isn't meant to stress everybody out. It's meant to make them aware that if they don't make changes, there are real consequences. So what, what are we talking? Seven hours? And I know it varies from person to person, but I think we can all agree that eight hours is, you know, uh, obscene and if impossible. If I get eight hours of sleep, I feel like a superhero the next day. Like, I That's feel right. like I could walk out and save an old lady from a bus. So what, what, what number are we shooting for, John? Would you actually do that, though, Trish, is a more interesting question. Of course I would. If it, I mean, yeah. <laughs> it depends on the old lady. Yeah, the, the state of the research is that the minimum is seven hours a night for any adult, no exceptions, and between seven and nine. And there, there's a, there are a lot of public figures over the years, and I don't want to name them because I don't want to get into the, uh, political divisiveness, but there's an idea that, oh, I only have to sleep four hours a night, and I'm, I'm at the office late, and I'm here before the boss. And um, it would be great if we all didn't have to sleep. You could just get a lot more stuff done. You could do all the things that you don't have time to do. But the reality is that seven's the minimum. Okay, so my, my interrupted six hours probably isn't cutting it then. It's The closer you can get to it, the better. But it's just it you you have to find a way. That's, that's the unfortunate message. And I just I want to read some of the health risks from chronic undersleeping, Alzheimer's, obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, depression, anxiety, suicidality, cancer. There are more, but those, these, those are, sound these, bad. Are, these are not guesses anymore. These are established links. Okay. Well, for those of us who just, you know, that's not really in the cards right now. Let's talk about mm-hmm. exercise. How do you find the time? Because a lot of the example you gave before, I think a lot of people kind of roll their eyes at because it's not a choice for many people between sitting around and watching a TV show for half an hour and exercising, they don't have that half hour to begin with. Unfortunately, the profession is still far behind other white collar industries that are giving health benefits, gym memberships, allowing for some extra time because they know that the people that are thought leaders in this area know that if their employees are better slept and they work out, they're going to perform better. In the UK, there's a pilot program right now that the government's sponsoring for the four-day work week, and it's getting oh, very French of them. Yeah, that's right. I think the most popular form of exercise for people that aren't gym rat type people is to just go jogging. Sure. So the trigger warning, unpopular opinion coming. Running's very popular in American culture. We love the half marathon. We love the marathon. We think it's incredibly impressive when people decide to train for this and do this. It takes a ton of effort. Don't get me wrong. But from an exercise standpoint, one of the worst habits is distance running. It's horrible on your joints. If you're doing it outdoors, you're sucking in 
automobile exhaust constantly. And it's, it's simply too much stress. Like, I mean, training for a marathon, you're running 60 miles a week. In my experience and first and secondhand knowledge, I'd recommend no more than 10 max. And a, a lot of people jog because they, it's self-regulating. There's nobody jogging next to them, telling them to go fast, or there's no coach. Let's separate for a second, just the, the mindful experience of being outside and running. There's benefit to that, but there are better ways to lose weight and be stronger and be in good cardiovascular shape than just running four or five, six miles at a nine, 10, 12, 15 minute pace. What I would encourage people to do are hit exercises and hits high intensity interval training. You can get more done than running six miles in 20 to 30 minutes. But what it requires is like you're redlining the car instead of just cruising at 30 or 40 miles an hour, you're going at 80 or 90 for a couple of minutes, taking a minute off. And the intensity is what brings the results. And that's a good place to take a break. We will be right back. Getting legal malpractice insurance doesn't have to be complicated. Let CBA Insurance Agency do the heavy lifting for you. We shop to the top carriers to find the best rates. Get a free quote by visiting cbainsurance.org. Interested in getting more calls from potential clients? Consider joining the CBA's Lawyer Referral Service. The LRS has provided a valuable service to attorneys in the community for over 80 years by matching clients with attorneys in particular areas of law. The LRS receives 25,000 calls annually and makes over 10,000 referrals to attorneys each year. In the last two years alone, LRS attorneys have been referred several cases that have settled for an excess of $1 million. To learn more, visit www.lrs.chicagobar.org. And we're back. Trish, you look like you had a thought when we took a break. Yeah. So I've been practicing law now for about 17, 18 years. And I was one of those long distance runners that you talked about. And at some point, my body just started to protest, right? So now I have chronic plantar fasciitis in one foot, I have, you know, joint issues in the other knee and yada, yada. And then on top of that, as my career went along, you know, I just got busier and the demands of partnership and all of those things. And so I think it's interesting that you talked about sort of your four categories, diet, exercise, mental health, and sleep. And I think that I used to be a pretty healthy person, but that's really fallen off in exact, you know, proportion to like how successful of a lawyer I was. So if you're somebody like me and you're just like, let's say you listen to this podcast and you're like, wow, this is a wake up call that John Moronica is really smart and I understand single. Um, do it, I just want to start from scratch, right? I'm starting at square one in these categories. What do I do? What's a practical thing you can talk to our listeners about in terms of where they would start in each of these categories? Let's take exercise because we were just there. Mm -hmm. Should I start watching it on TV? <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> it, you're close. Uh, YouTube has tons of examples. If you just type in 20 minute hit workout, there are a lot of people selling programs online and there's a ton of free content, all of these influencers and whatnot. I'm sure Instagram too, but YouTube's got a better search engine and you, you want to do things where you're, I mean, 
it's going to be difficult. Even if you're good at it, it's still difficult. But marginally, if you're just starting out and you're in objectively bad cardiovascular shape, it's going to be hard. But try 10 minutes. I mean, you, do you guys know what burpees are? That's that's yeah. a pretty universal cardio and strength workout. If you did 10 minutes of burpees, like one minute on, one minute off, but you're doing them as fast as you can for a minute, that could suffice as your workout for day one. And then maybe if you're just starting, you might be fairly sore or unmotivated on day two. Day three, maybe it's 11 minutes. But to jog around at a 10 or 12 minute pace for four or five miles is not going to move the needle very much. And it's probably going to bring stress fractures, joint problems, et cetera, especially if you're running on concrete, if you live in a city. Mm-hmm. And it takes more time, right? Right. And it's, you, you can get done all the work in a fourth or a fifth of the time. But John, how do you square that with, and I, I do want to go through each of these four categories, but how do you square that with like the guidance we get from the government that says, if you want to lose weight, and frankly, most Americans are in a position where they should lose at least some weight. If you want to lose weight, you should work out 90 minutes a day or something. It's not that high. But so if, if we're talking about just starting out, if I were to take you to the jiu-jitsu gym and run you through a 90-minute workout, you'd never want to see a gym for the rest of your life, period. You, just, you have to be a novice for a little while and train yourself up. So a 20-minute burpee workout doesn't sound undoable. From a health standpoint, you should probably be working out at a hit rate two hours a week. That would be enough for you to maintain a good cardiovascular and overall strength and flexibility status. That's total. So just two hours. Two hours. Broken up yeah, however fa- you want. A fairly, fairly intense exercise. It could be four thirties to one hours, right? I mean, you're not going to look like Brad Pitt in Fight Club or Margot Robbie in the Barbie movie, but you're going to look and feel and perform better than you do now if you're doing almost no exercise. Okay. So step one. For those of us starting from square one here, is, Trish is actually writing this down. Our audience I, can I see that right now. I actually am writing all of yeah. this down, and yeah. I'm. I think I'm going to see you, Mr. Moranic, over the weekend, and we are going to talk about this some more. But this, yeah, YouTube is YouTube.com. Y-O-U. Thank you for that. T- okay, yeah. you got say, it. Yeah, yeah. that's okay. <laughs> Who so. you think you're talking to? <laughs> okay. Okay, so that's exercise. What about diet? And. I think I speak from experience when I say I I know how to eat healthy, but for the other people that listen. I mean, all you drink is Diet Coke, Trish. That is not true. I punctuate it with beer. I can tell you my my father believes that water is only meant for bathing. Yeah, this is is like the Hindenburg here already. Um, (laughs) This one's a bit easier because I think everybody knows – which foods are healthy and which aren't. When there's a there's a bit of gray area around certain things, like for example, flax seeds, horrible for you, but have been marketed as a health food for a long time. They just they cause the body to release cortisol and it inflames, and it's just something you should stay away from. But for the basics, I mean, if everything tasted like donuts and ice cream, we'd all be ripped. There'd be nothing to talk about. But All of the best tasting foods are the least healthy and the ones that we don't really love to eat. Like they're never the feature. You're not getting to the restaurant and the main course is like Brussels sprouts. The restaurant would go out of business. You're waiting for the steak or the salmon or something. Lots of fruits and vegetables, not meat every day. I mean, the American culture and diet pushes some type of flesh at every meal. 
It's simply not necessary. It's too nutrient dense and it's a lot of uh, animal-based fiber. We just don't need that much of it. How many times a week do you eat meat, John? Mm, I'd say two to three meals a week. That's just un-American. It's, it is. That's, it's certainly quote unquote unpatriotic. It but is. It's, it's very effective and it, I enjoy it more when I have it because I don't have it all the time. Okay, probably, but we can all we can all agree that quinoa is disgusting, right? Like that. This, so, I, I, it's I don't it's know literally you know. guinea pig food. <laughs> I, like that's what it was developed for. Guinea pigs in the Andes. I don't know if you know this, but our mutual friend John Amarillo has like a really specific hatred of quinoa that manages to come up frequently, and all he ever says about it is it's guinea pig food. <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah. It's disgusting. I don't know if somebody named Quinoa beat you up or something. I don't know where this comes from, but um, he absolutely hates it. So let's set aside. He's not going to eat quinoa. Mm-hmm. And to your point on meat diets, I think, you know, as we careen between climate crisis and climate crisis, there are other reasons we should be thinking about it, right? But on the other 16 meals you eat a week, what are you eating? There's a lot to say on this. I'm someone who loves snacks. If I'm having a meal, I'm thinking about pizza. That's just my preference. If I ate pizza as often. Tisk. No, no gluten, John. Yeah. It's inflammatory. You know if better. I, <laughs> if I ate it as often as I wanted it, I'd be 300 pounds. There is an element of discipline and diet that you just can't get away from. Okay, but so we're recording. It's a Friday afternoon. It's almost four o'clock. Let's just all talk about what we ate today. Amarillo, why don't you go first? I had, for breakfast, I had a bowl of gluten-free cereal with almond milk. And for lunch, I had some Chex Mix and a beef jerky. Okay. I usually skip breakfast, but this morning I ate breakfast. And I got a sesame seed bagel with chive cream cheese. And since then, I think I've had eight Diet Cokes, and I skipped <laughs> lunch. But I also had two glasses of water. Oh, I, just, I so, walked. I walked okay. right into this one. You guys are gonna. You're gonna fucking love this. I, I mean, this, this, all, this sounds all like healthy decisions to <laughs> I me. I know. I know. I think yeah. we're. I think we're These killing are, it. Go ahead, John. What did you yeah, have today? Uh, so you're, yeah, it's, I haven't eaten today yet. Ah. Oh, and uh, okay. and so this is maybe like a nice segue into another strategy is starvation so that is that's the most common retort when somebody brings up time restricted eating or like intermittent fasting as it's i mean called. you could just do like the supermodel diet with vodka and cigarettes that's obviously yeah. effective or Ooh, yeah from the 90s yeah what's mm. the new version of that uh ozempic yeah. yes. it's called ozempic ozempic yeah. wagovi at the other yeah the higher dose version so uh, do you fast regularly i for the past eight years I've been eating twice a day. Okay. When do you eat? Usually around noon. And then I try to finish by nine o'clock, but I I don't stick to this every day. I'm probably 95% honest to it. But the research now around time-restricted eating is just not controversial anymore. The smaller the window in which you eat all of your food drastically improves all kinds of health conditions, better sleep, more energy in the gym, weight loss. There's a, a famous study. They took four groups of rats. Oh, God, I hate One, rats. Is this a lawyer joke? And this First is not of all, a they're joke. always is, trying to tell us what to do. But anyway. This is not a joke. 
The first group had what was uh, considered health food for rats, and they were allowed to eat it whenever they wanted. It was in the cage all the time. The second group had the health food, but they were restricted to eating it only in a certain window when it was given to them. The third group had rat junk food at their leisure, and the fourth had rat junk food in a time-restricted window. At the end of the study, the order of healthiness of the rats was the time-restricted group with health food, the time-restricted group with junk food, health food anytime, junk food anytime. So it's more important when you eat than what you're eating. Now, you can't just eat donuts all the time and expect to be healthy, but you don't have to be so strict with the health food content because a lot of the common problems with food choices and weight gain can be eliminated if you just eat in a shorter period of time. Wait, wait. To be clear, what do we mean when we're saying time-restricted eating? Like just eating your meals really fast? <laughs> That's I've been doing that for like... Well, I mean, I eat at my desk. Twenty-nine years. Two out of three meals a day, super fast. Because oh wow, I, I thought you were a dedicated bubble. lawyer. I, I eat three out of three meals in my day. I have a family, desk. Trish. Your mm-hmm. husband lives halfway across the country. He's currently in Norway. So <laughs> okay. <laughs> You're talking about intermittent fasting, right? I've read yeah. about this. That's right. And I know some people that do it, but I always thought, and what I'm hearing you say right now is something different. I always thought the reason it worked was because you weren't eating all day and because you were just putting sort of time limits on your eating. But I think what you're saying to us now is that it's more than that. Yeah, I can go a little deeper into it. If you took, if you ate the same amount of calories and even the same food, but you ate it over the course of 18 hours instead of 12, Mm -hmm. you would feel worse. You'd be heavier. You wouldn't sleep as well. You wouldn't perform as well. Why? So the, when you eat food in the gut produces a version of fight or flight in digestion. For example, if, if you were eating raw flesh as a tiger or something in the bush, the, these animals are that. yeah, <laughs> it's scaring the other creatures away when they approach. <laughs> There's a lot we can learn from cats. Yeah. These creatures evolved to get as much nutrition out of the meat as possible and get it out of the system so it doesn't go putrid and kill you. So when you put food into your stomach, the body deprioritizes everything else so it can extract the nutrients and eliminate the rest of the food waste from the body so it doesn't go putrid and you don't die. So the kinds of functions that we're used to relying on, like critical thinking, attention, athletic performance, memory, all of these are ticked down a little bit while your body is processing food. So if you shrink that window, you're not under that kind of stress and your performance doesn't suffer. Okay. I will admit though, like when I started doing this, I was learning a lot about it and uh, it would be 10 in the morning and I'm at my desk and I was just like, I I can't make it to lunch. There's no way I'm going to be able to wait till noon to have something. And then after a few months, it just, then that was 11 a.m. And then that was 12. And now I do, once every seven to 10 days, I do a 24-hour fast. Mm-hmm. So all that all that advice about breakfast being the most important meal of the day, that's out? Like, what it's are we talking utter, about here? Utter, well, utter horseshit, yes. I, I never eat in the morning. I just don't like the way I feel after I eat because I have stuff to do. It's 
my favorite meal is the one at the end of the day when I don't have to do anything that's critically important. So I started by asking, you know, what you'd eaten today and the answer, as it turns out, is nothing. So nothing. let's just take yesterday yeah, for an example. Sure. What did you eat yesterday? Yeah, I do a lot of raw vegetables, hummus. I do love quinoa, rice. Gross. Uh, fal- you just lost yeah. all credibility. <laughs> Falafel. I think this I'm, is going to turn I'm, into the first No one likes quinoa. Podcast. That's a yeah. lie. You're lying. Yeah, I, I do uh, a, yeah, a, lot of, a lot of wraps, grain bowls. Okay. I love Japanese food. I mean, the, the Japanese, it's not a coincidence that they're the healthiest population on the planet, and it's largely because- With one of the highest suicide rates, too, so there you well, go. Yeah, it's a, uh, a function of the high Maybe pressure because of, their, of their, their jobs. Meals, John. Maybe, Maybe because that. they're not enjoying their quite, meals, John. Quite a theory, yeah. One more thing on that, too, is that like if, uh, if I can maintain the discipline of eating within the window and generally keeping it pretty clean, I never think about- when I go out, what I'm not going to get. If it's burger and fries, ribs, getting dessert, I just, I don't have to worry that it's going to impact me at all because uh, the rest of the stuff I do during the week. Okay, John, I'm going to push back on you on this a little bit because you and I were friends. Uh, we have professional past, relationships. Past, 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 tense. past tense, yes. That's what yes. I heard. Well, too. Because she heard you say you liked quinoa and now she uh, knows you're a liar. You, I heard you diss Diet Coke, so I don't know how much. But um, we are friends. We've been friends for a long time, right? That's, yeah, correct. Yeah, okay. I've been to the bar with you many times. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, she, she's setting you up here. This feels like a cross. <laughs> Keep going. Yeah. Some of those instances have happened past the hour of 9 o'clock. That's right. Okay. Admit. Okay. I'm thinking, I know we've been out to dinner many, many times and we don't tend to, I don't think we tend to eat late, but certainly we've, we have ingested alcohol past nine o'clock together. Correct. How does that fit into your diet? It is an exception. It happens sometimes. <laughs> um, if you're if we're working in a perfect world, I'm never eating past nine o'clock, but I didn't come on this podcast to tell everybody that they should take the last little joy in their lives and not drink and not drink uh, caffeine and only eat plants. Like you have to maintain social relationships. You have to enjoy your food. You should do things that you like to do. If you can be disciplined in your diet 90% of the time, 85% of the time, and then you can eat whatever you want outside of that, like that's a healthy balance. I will say I, I have noticed about you, and I'll, I'll, I'll ask you this question second, but uh, do you know, if we, me and you were going to the bar, do you know what I'm going to order? Diet Coke. <laughs> well, I, I will actually. Of I, I think uh, the margarita is a frequent culprit. I remember. Ooh, sugar. <laughs> just honestly, it was just that once. I do not normally get margaritas. Uh, okay. I will normally get an IPA, but I know I think what you will normally get, and because I've noticed this, mm. you seem to really get a vodka water or a vodka soda or like a vodka. It, I think I see you drinking a lot of clear things. That's right. Instances we've been to the bar. And I am hurt, frankly, that you do not know that I will get the happiest IPA on the menu. <laughs> but are you doing that on purpose? Is there a reason yeah. you're not drinking IPAs and margaritas with me? Yeah, there's another uh, method to the madness around that. Liquor has what's called congener in it. And I can't spell it for you. But a good rule of thumb is the darker and tastier a liquor is, the more of this it has. And this is the primary contributor to hangover. So if you drink... Okay, well, that answers some questions. If you drink vodka or gin and you take out a lot of the sugar, like 
soda instead of tonic or take out the Coke mixer or whatever it is. And I do it because vodka gives me the least horrible hangover and the water in there is keeping me hydrated to a better degree than if I were drinking beer, or just whiskey straight or something. But that doesn't apply to red wine, right? Certainly does not. Red wine, I, I can't even touch the stuff because of how bad my hangover is. This is barbaric. This is barbaric. Ugh. I can't even... One, gl- one glass, maybe. But I do have a red wine question before we move on. And John, maybe you know, and maybe I've asked you this before. At some point, maybe like five or six years ago, something started happening when I drink red wine. And it's that I wake up in the middle of the night at about two or three o'clock and I'm up for about an hour and a half or two hours. And then I try to go back to sleep. You just need more practice, Trish. (laughs) (laughs) What what is going on? Why is it that red wine has that reaction in me? I couldn't. Alcohol has that impairment of sleep generally for people. I don't know why red wine's Mm -hmm. the one that's keeping you up. I'm probably going to get some listener emails about that and some, well, actually people. So the, uh, the red wine lovers love this old piece of research that it's two glasses a day is good for you because it's the, the antioxidants. Mm-hmm. Resveratrol is the compound in red wine that's that, and now sold as a supplement. So it's not red wine with the alcohol. The alcohol is still detrimental. It's just the resveratrol, which you can get in a pill at the grocery store. I don't want to hear any more bad-mouthing of red wine. Let me ask you something else. <laughs> what is mindfulness and why does it annoy me so much? Well, I think, sorry, I want to, before you answer, like generally, can you talk about the mental health capacity of this and to the extent mindfulness is a component of that? Sure. I, 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 mental health is just the way we manage stress, I think is the simplest way to think about it. Stress is, has been called the silent killer. I think there's a documentary by the same name about it. It's probably better to talk about stress first. So stress is nothing more than some degree of the fight or flight response taking over our bodies. And the fight or flight response for the listeners that don't know is if you perceive to be in some type of physical danger, your body's flooding you with neurochemicals, cortisol and adrenaline, because it's powering you to either run away from this thing or to be in a fight to the death. So you survive. But because we've largely omitted four-legged predators that will eat us now from modern society, we've created conditions where our bodies are trained to respond to an impending deadline the same way that we do as if there was a bear chasing us. We can't say it's evolved, but we've trained ourselves to stress ourselves out constantly And so if you are under stress, you are swimming in these neurochemicals that aren't meant for you to be exposed to them for any long period of time. And so you can understand the exercise link here is that if you're in the midst of a fight or flight reaction and you don't either run or fight, you're not exercising and burning off those fuels. And so they just sit and they create all the, you know, if if you want me to read some of those, it's not, it's not good either, but metabolic disorder, cardiac disorder, atherosclerosis, sleep apnea, depression, anxiety. I feel like you're just reading my medical records at this point. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, lawyers, lawyers are notoriously stressed. I mean, it's like our one constant state of being, right? And if mm-hmm. I see a lawyer who looks really relaxed, I'm thinking, oh, they're probably not very in demand right now. Yeah. They're not doing it right. 
There's so many of us that say we work best under pressure, right? So there's even research that shows that the way that we frame our stress has an impact on how unhealthy that stress is on us. So like, conversely, if you're stressed, it's easy to get stressed out about how much stress you're under. And mindfulness, and maybe a nice segue, is a way to retrain your brain so you don't exacerbate the stress, you minimize it, and you can weaponize it in a healthy way to perform better, not worse. I think the natural follow-up question is how? <laughs> yep. So it, mindfulness is simply the act of paying attention closely to what is happening in your momentary experience. And the antithesis of mindfulness is rumination where you are thinking about the past or the future and you're lost in thought. You're paying attention to something that's other than what what's do. happening right now. Yeah, that's yep, like that's my me. constant state of being. Yeah, I, yeah. yeah. That's just most, most professionals, almost all lawyers, they say, I can't shut off my brain. Mm -hmm. um, I'm replaying what happened this morning, what I'm going to say tomorrow to the judge, what I'm going to say mm -hmm. to the client during the presentation. And yeah. all of that the jerk actually, store ran out of you. Yeah. <laughs> all of that actually makes your forthcoming performance worse. And it's really hard to wrap your head around because we're so used to operate. Like that's their, our default mode is to ruminate constantly because we feel like we have a handle on all of the, the mental checklist. And it's, it's making us worse performers. So don't prepare. Just wing it. Well, so that everything's going to turn out okay. Yeah, you're conflating preparation with the worry about whether you're prepared enough. Or if you can't actually do it in the moment, let's say you're at the desk and you're writing the outline for whatever it might be, a, a public speaking engagement or a cross-examination. The only way you can impact the quality of that is to do it. But when you, you finish the outline and you put it away and then you're at dinner with your family and you're running through it in your head, you're not present, you're not being a good dad or mother or sibling or friend or spouse, and you, you're, not, you're not actually doing any work on it. You're just worrying about whether it was good enough or complete enough. So if you are that concerned, the only way to impact the quality of it is to go sit down and work on it. I don't know. I, I, have, I have ideas about oral arguments, like when I'm in the shower or, you know, doing household chores and I'm just Driving. thinking about it. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And, and that's, we've trained ourselves to work that way. If you could not have these just spontaneous thoughts about a lot of this can be just, it's you're, you're stressed about it being good enough. And if you can train yourself into only working when you're working and knowing that it's good enough, you won't have to burden your free time with the thoughts of, and while you're ruminating, you are by definition under stress. You can't ruminate and not be under stress because you, you are concerned with something other than what's happening in real time. And that concern is driven by stress about it. So, John, I kind of feel like we're back where we started, which is where, you know, we're like, we don't have time. And you're like, yes, you do. Quinoa is terrible. <laughs> so the... Mindfulness and to a higher degree meditation, this is a way to train the brain. It does take time. It's a practice like yoga or like your regular workout. The good news with mindfulness and meditation, and I should explain that meditation is just highly focused mindfulness. 
at the highest level of attention. You're meditating and paying attention to a singular thing. It can often be the breath, a mantra. Some people use a guided meditation with a, someone speaking, instrumental music. There are a lot of ways to do it, but theoretically anything can be the object of your attention. And what that does is train your brain to just be present and momentary and with enough training, the rumination will stop and you'll become more reflective, less reactive, memory improves. And with enough training in mindfulness and meditation, your brain actually physically changes. There are enduring results, just like building bigger muscles or a faster mile time. And you can train meditation. You can start as early as as few as two minutes a day and build up from there. You could, there is a place to fit it in. I'm not saying it's easy, but it, it can be done incrementally. John, do you think you can at home start telling Sloan that it's not a timeout, it's a meditation? I mean, I can try in the throes of a two-year-old's uh, temper tantrum. I think that might be a hard sell, but I'm willing to try anything at this point. In the meantime, why don't we take a quick break and everyone can meditate on how disgusting quinoa is. We'll be right back <laughs> with Stranger in Legal Fiction. All right, and we're back with Stranger in Legal Fiction. Our audience knows the rules. It's pretty simple. Trish and I have done some research on the internet. We've found one law that is real, but probably shouldn't be for some reason. We've made another one up, and we're going to quiz each other and our guest, John, on who can distinguish strange legal fact from fiction. John, Trish, you ready? Let's do it. I've never been more ready. Oh, well, then lead <laughs> us off. Come on, champ. All right. Okay, so... Amarillo loves this about me. Uh, I'm going to just re-explain the rules real super quick. I'm going to oh, say God, a fake stop, Just No, just no. Just don't. Okay. And don't mention, um, don't mention Michigan. The two things. That's listen, all you're I not allowed for. in Michigan anymore because of this podcast. It, that's a sure, loss. But. That's a real loss. Thanks. <laughs> okay. In Iowa, the length of a kiss is legally limited to five minutes. Seeking to expand your legal network, sharpen your skills, and obtain free CLE? Unless you plan on being a professional failure, that's probably a good idea. Join the Chicago Bar Association today and connect with lawyers and judges who lead Chicago's legal community. The CBA will help you expand your personal and professional networks while providing practical programs and resources that meet your specific practice needs. New lawyer membership starts at just $82 a year. Learn more at www.chicagobar.org. Need a lawyer? Steve? I do. You look like you need a lawyer. The Chicago Bar Association Lawyer Referral Service has been making referrals for over 70 years to attorneys who have been thoroughly screened for experience in over 40 different areas of the law. Call 312-554-2001 or visit us online at www.chicagobar.org backslash LRS. Or in Lanaron, Spain, it is prohibited to die. Boy. What was the second place in Spain? Uh, Lanaron. Yeah, it's definitely how you pronounce that. Yeah, I know. I've I've been practicing it, and I think I nailed it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. John? I mean, those are both aggravatingly stupid. Uh, I think the, the Spanish law is fake. Do you want to take a minute to meditate on it? If you'll allow it. <laughs> no. Why is the Spanish law fake? 
it's just more preposterous than the kissing thing. And I can see people in Iowa, especially of a certain denomination, having laws against kissing too long because it could lead to other things. Impure thoughts. That's correct. <laughs> yeah. A long-standing rule of thumb in Stranger and Legal Fiction is the dumber it sounds, the more true it is. So I'm going to go with the Spanish example. Trish? Is there final answers? Final answer. Final answer. One John is right, one John is wrong. Amarillo, congratulations. (laughs) As always, you have have gone by our constant, the only constant we have on this podcast. The more ridiculous it is, the more likely it is to be true. So the kissing prohibition is not... True. It's a, you know, widely circulated internet rumor. The prohibition in Spain, the law in Spain is true. And it's part of a movement that some places have done to protest not having enough land for cemeteries and not having places to bury people and sort of these limitations that we now have. And so there are a number of places around the world that have tried to make dying illegal so they can bring attention to this being a sort of ongoing uh, land use issue. So that's one for Amarillo, zero for Moronic, mm. and... I, I feel like a garbage human now for insulting yeah, yeah, this yeah. law because it has such a meaningful... Do you... Yeah. yeah thing behind Do you it. feel like you just drank a Diet Coke? Do you feel that bad? <laughs> uh, I, I'd rather subject myself to public embarrassment on a podcast than have one of those. Uh, okay. What you got, John? All right. Round two. Mississippi, the state with the highest rate of obesity in the United States, banned its cities and counties from requiring restaurants to post nutritional information about meals and prohibits them from banning toys in fast food meals. That's option number one. Option number two, in Vermont, it is illegal to walk a pet giraffe on Sundays unless accompanied by a licensed zoologist or conservation biologist. Anyone? What do you think, Mr. Moronic? Oh, boy. I can see the government in Mississippi doing something like that to its population. But I think that the Vermont one is real because it's more obscure and ridiculous. Oh, you're a quick learner. (laughs) Trish? I agree. I am guessing that the Vermont law is an animal restriction and not specifically about giraffes. Although you never know every once in a while you get like a, you know, crazy neighbor who gets a giraffe and you get like a weird law because of it. But the Mississippi one to me feels like the sort of thing John Amarillo would make up to trick me. And it's a little too neat. It's like exactly on point for our podcast episode. And if there's a thing I know about life, it's that you cannot trust John Amarillo. So <laughs> that's I'm, I'm with Moronic. That's unfair. That's deeply unfair and insulting. And, and I would add, wrong. Oh, my no. red my red meat and red wine addled brain tricked both of you, despite the fact that, you know, apparently it can't function because it's so riddled with Alzheimer's plaque. It's the suburban air. Just just give it give it ten years, John. You'll be right yeah, there. Great. The Mississippi law is the real law. You cannot have nutritional information on restaurant food and you can God. not prohibit giving toys to children the in party fast of small food government meals. friends <laughs> that discerned me in disclaimer on the podcast episode didn't it you know i i looked at i looked at the the governor's statement on that because i was really curious right like mm-hmm. exactly how stupid was the explanation for this 
And he said that the impetus behind the bill was to get government out of the way of people making their nutritional choices. Of course, the question that came to my mind was, if you're not telling them the nutritional information, how are they making those choices? Well, and also it's saying to like, you know, the sweet greens and the subways and like those companies of the world, like you can't provide X information to your customers. So yeah, Trish, you're probably the only person who thinks of Subway when they think of healthy eating. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it seems like, you know, part of their advertising pitch is like, this is only X calories. This is only Y calories, right? Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, Subway is permanently divorced from any kind of healthy choices after Jared. I just... That's, well, let's not go there. We're not yeah. going to talk. That's, that <laughs> we do is... have to bring this to a close, but I do want to say, isn't it weird that they, no matter where you walk by one anywhere, they all smell exactly the same? I feel like if I was a blindfolded person and you put me in front of a subway anywhere in the world, I would know exactly that I was in front of a subway. So they're probably not going to be a future sponsor. <laughs> uh, John, Bud, thank you for joining us today. This was a intellectually nutritious conversation. God. Uh, <laughs> How clever. <laughs> You're How the best, clever. John. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, Thank- yeah. And you are too, Trish. You <laughs> are you guys. such a great co-host. <laughs> Thank you guys both for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Good. Thank you to our executive producer, Jen Byrne, Adam Lockwood on Sound, and everyone at the Legal Talk Network family. Remember, you can follow us and send us comments, questions, episode ideas, or just troll us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at CBA at the Bar, all one word. You can also email us at podcast at chicagobar.org. Please also rate and leave us your feedback on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Audible, or wherever you download your podcast. It helps us get the word out. Until next time, for everyone here at the CBA, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you soon at the Bar drinking a clear-colored liquor. must say mike mike drop john very good way to tie it back in yeah you know what what i'd say is imagine you on some quinoa and vegetables you might be unstoppable <laughs>